Takeda is a global biopharmaceutical company headquartered in Japan with a large U.S. presence, including facilities in six states. Their R&D focuses on oncology, rare diseases, neuroscience, gastroenterology, plasma-derived therapy, and vaccines. Improving access to their medicines is only one of the many ways Takeda has been improving patients' lives for 239 years. Learn more at Takeda.us. That's T-A-K-E-D-A dot U-S. George Floyd is the same age that, uh, that I am. I look at him and I really do think that could have been me. That could be me pulled over for speeding five miles over the speed limit. That could be me um, with a busted taillight. That could be me who is just seen as a black man and not as the Surgeon General of the United States. Hello, Pulse Check listeners. This is Dan Diamond, and welcome to our special Pulse Check series on the coronavirus outbreak. In today's episode of Pulse Check, I'm in conversation with United States Surgeon General Jerome Adams. All right, we are recording. Who made time for us to talk about what some call the dual pandemics that the nation is facing right now the pandemic of coronavirus and of structural racism in healthcare and beyond. Plus, protesting during a pandemic. Here's our conversation. There's been considerable focus about coronavirus for three months. In the past 10 days, there's been a lot of focus on police brutality. And I wanted to talk about the protests over the death of George Floyd and policing that we have seen emerge. The nation is facing a pandemic of infectious disease. We also have a pandemic of structural racism that's contributed to worse outcomes for Black Americans for decades. I've talked to some public health experts who call them the dual pandemics. You, doctor, are one of the most prominent health officials in the country. You're also a Black man. How do you balance the public health issues between the two? Well, that is a great question, and I could not have put it better. We have multiple pandemics. We talk about syndemics, where you have multiple pandemics converging. And uh, we have a pandemic of coronavirus. We have pandemics of misinformation. We have a pandemic of, of, again, racial bias impacting an array of different health, uh, health outcomes. And it's something that I've really fought for throughout my career. Uh, personally, I grew up in rural Maryland. I grew up poor. I often speak about my own family and the struggles we faced with heart disease, with cancer, with substance misuse. And I've also been public about the fact that I myself am on multiple medications for chronic diseases that I'm at higher risk for having grown up poor and black. I've had asthma all my life. And uh, I'll tell you, Dan, one of my proudest moments was standing at the White House with the vice president and the president on on either side and holding up my asthma inhaler because uh, I, I grew up not believing that I would ever see adulthood. I was in the hospital um, so much for my asthma. And I want people to understand that you can overcome your circumstances, but I also want them to understand where I come from really helps me understand the impact of your circumstances on your outcomes. Uh, I want things to be better for my kids and for my kids' kids. And I want America to understand that to do that, it's not just focusing on healthcare access, as important as that is, but also on the upstream social determinants of health, transportation, housing, 
a, a, a job that pays a living wage so that you don't actually have to work uh, 18, 20 hours out of the day just to make the ends meet. And uh, one of the issues that I'm deeply concerned about is structural and institutional racism. That is a social determinant of health. And so I think uh, coronavirus has really shown a light on things that we in public health have known for a long time and that I as a black man has know, have known for a long time. And I hope we take advantage of this um, opportunity that uh, this unfortunate tragedy has given us to really focus on some of these issues in a meaningful way and to change some of the underlying structural issues that we know will create health 20 and 30 years down the road when we've stopped talking about coronavirus. Which is the more urgent issue to address right now, coronavirus or structural racism? Well, I think that's a a fair question. But that said, I think it's uh, a question that depends on where you sit. And it's a question that, that, that's asking about two things that in my mind are inextricably linked. Uh, we know that structural racism and institutional racism and racial bias that's occurred over the years impacts your risk for cancer, for heart disease, for strokes, for diabetes. We know that those things put you at risk for COVID. We know that if you are in a community right now where coronavirus uh, is spreading, that your most acute risk is is getting coronavirus and dying, particularly if you're someone who's in one of those vulnerable populations. But we also know that there are people who who walk around in their daily lives and feel at risk from from violence from from law enforcement officials, from violence in their communities. I was in Chicago um, right before this started, and we were talking with their Urban Labs Institute about the the impact and the toll of of violence. We know that that these things, uh, these stressors actually through your, your body's way of dealing with them actually can be translated and transmitted into your risk for other diseases. So the two are inextricably linked, and I would not fault anyone for saying right now, I'm more concerned about COVID. I also wouldn't fault anyone for saying right now, my number one concern is dealing with racism in my community. Merck CEO Ken Frazier last week said that George Floyd, quote, could be me. Do you feel the same way? It's a great, <laughs> a great statement by, by, uh, by Mr. Frazier. He's, a, he's a, a friend and a colleague of mine, and I was really... Uh, taken by his remarks because it's something that I've tried to express uh, that that it's something I carry with me every day of my life. When I drive into work uh, and I'm thinking about what to wear, I'm thinking about um, being particularly cautious to to the neighborhoods that I'm driving through. I'm thinking about um, uh, other factors that people who aren't black don't have to think about, but may impact just whether or not I can even make it to work, how I go through my day. And George Floyd is the same age that, uh, that I am. And I, I look at him and I really do think that could have been me. That could be me pulled over for speeding five miles over the speed limit. That could be me um, with a busted taillight. That could be me um, who is just seen as a black man and not as the Surgeon General of the United States, especially if I'm not wearing a uniform, but I'm casually dressed in my hoodie and tennis shoes and athletic apparel. And that could be me on the side of a road with, uh, with a knee in my, in my neck. And so I really do appreciate um, Mr. Frazier 
saying that. And it's something that I, I think really is why you have so many people angry and frustrated because they saw that. They saw that and they didn't see um, George Floyd uh, alone. They saw themselves. Uh, they saw their faces there with that knee on their necks. Have you personally experienced police brutality or, or wrongdoing at the hands of the police? I have been pulled over uh, in my life for very minimal offenses. I have been questioned in grocery stores and in shopping centers by security guards for things that uh, I did not do. Uh, I have throughout my academic career, and you want to talk about institutional and structural racism, uh, the fact that there are fewer black men going to medical school right now than there were 30 years ago shows you that uh, that while in many ways we've made progress, in some ways we have regressed. Uh, I've, I've dealt with, with institutional and structural racism at many points throughout my career. And again, it's something I deal with on a daily basis. And I, I, I think about, I really do think whether or not that's impacted my risk for high blood pressure, which, which I have, my risk for diabetes. And I follow my blood sugars closely because I have a family history and, uh, and I am actually in the category of pre-diabetic right now. Uh, so to answer your question, yes, I have dealt with these things. Unfortunately, many of us internalize them. But if you internalize them and you don't have an outlet and you don't feel like it's going to get better, then it can manifest in ways that are harmful to your mental, uh, to your physical, to your emotional and spiritual health. I wrote a story last week, doctor, about how some public health experts we're encouraging Americans to join protests over police brutality, despite the ongoing risk of, of COVID-19. That story was widely criticized by some public health experts. So I wanted to ask you directly, do you think that people should protest amid the pandemic? Well, what I've always said uh, for anyone going out is that if you're going to go out, know your risk and know how to stay safe. Uh, it's important for people to know that there are communities where we are seeing upticks in spread and the coronavirus is still here. It is still deadly. It is still contagious. And if you uh, choose to go out in that setting, you need to understand whether or not you are someone who's at higher risk, someone with uh, with chronic diseases, someone who is older. Again, uh, 94% of mortality is over the age of, of 60. You need to understand if you're living with someone who is at risk, because the last thing you'd want to do is go out and protest and then bring coronavirus home to your vulnerable loved one and have them ultimately um, succumb to it. And, and if you are going to go out, then we want you to take precautions. We want you to try to stay six feet apart from each other whenever you can. We want you to wear a face covering. We want you to practice good hand hygiene including carrying hand sanitizer with you, bring as, as little with you as possible, because if you're carrying a backpack, if you're carrying multiple layers of clothing, those are all uh, things that ultimately will need to be disinfected and could transmit coronavirus. And so uh, to answer your question directly, uh, I, I understand the anger, the frustration, the fear, and why people feel um, that that they need to prioritize going out and protesting. And again, my what I say to people as a physician is, if you're going to do something, I want to help you understand your risk, and I want, to, I'm, I want to help you understand how to do it as safely as possible. One of those risks may come not from the protesters being there, but from the police. And as the Surgeon General, what is your thinking on the public health implications of police 
openly using tear gas or chemical irritants on largely peaceful protesters, especially during a deadly respiratory pandemic? Well, that's definitely something that I and many of my physician colleagues have been talking about a lot. And I think that's something we're going to uh, be discussing as a nation moving forward. What does uh, good, responsible, safe policing look like? Uh, I do want to say that throughout my public health career, I've found that I've had many successes when I've partnered with the police department. When you talk about the opioid epidemic, our, our police officers are our frontline mental health workers in substance use treatment programs. And, and that's unfortunate. It shouldn't be that way, but they are. Uh, and I, I came to the reality that you can't solve the opioid crisis if you don't talk to the people who were on the front lines and partner with them. In many cases, uh, police officers understand the intricate barriers and complicated, uh, complicated situations in communities and can help us understand where we need to put a testing site for coronavirus or, or where, where uh, they get the most calls for, uh, for, for heart attacks and where we need to, to have an intervention where we increase uh, knowledge about CPR. And so uh, I do think that we need a lot of work done in terms of reforming our police departments and reforming the way they interact with communities. But I also think that it's important that we understand uh, these are folks in many cases who live and exist in those communities. These are folks who know those communities and these are folks who are committed uh, in most cases, not in all cases, to lifting up health. And and, uh, I don't want to get too uh, uh, or wax too philosophical here, but I think it's also important for people to hear me say and for them to understand that 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 doesn't say that that that's not to say that that there aren't uh, things that that police can do to address bias. That's not to say that they are free of bias. Um, you can say you can have good intentions and still be a perpetrator of of racist policies and institutional racism. And so we need to make sure we sit down, we identify where these biases exist, we identify ways that we can um, alleviate and mitigate uh, that bias, and that we work together moving forward to lift up health for all. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be back after a message from our sponsor. Takeda is a patient-focused, values-based, R&D-driven biopharmaceutical company headquartered in Japan that has a broad U.S. presence, including facilities in six states. All of their more than 18,000 U.S. employees are committed to bringing better health and a brighter future to patients everywhere. The company's research is primarily focused on Takeda's core therapeutic areas, pushing the boundaries of what is possible. They bring life-changing therapies to patients in oncology, rare diseases, neuroscience, gastroenterology, plasma-derived therapy, and vaccines. Takeda is always looking for ways to improve patients' access to their medicines, and that is only one of the many ways they have been improving patients' lives for 239 years. Learn more at Takeda.us. That's T-A-K-E-D-A dot U-S. You've spoken out, doctor, about racial disparities across your tenure as Surgeon General. And sometimes that's led to backlash, particularly from critics of the Trump administration, who point to other policies across the administration, Medicaid work requirements, for instance, that they say makes it hard to take a Trump appointee seriously on racial disparities. 
What have those experiences taught you? Well, one of the biggest lessons that I've learned as Surgeon General is that it is extremely hard to separate uh, the politics from, from the job that I have to do. I was appointed by the President of the United States, and I am very grateful for that appointment. That said, I report to and work for the people of the United States. And one of the things that frustrates me, quite frankly, when I look in the media, is how I'm often labeled as, as Trump's Surgeon General or the White House Surgeon General instead of the United States Surgeon General. It really hurts my ability to do my job when people see uh, me, and, and this is the case for many other uh, officials who I've spoken to, as being, uh, be, being representative of only one party or another party. And so what I really try to do is make sure I'm going out there and talking to people uh, on all sides of the aisle. I don't want to say both sides of the aisle because we know that there's not just Democrat and Republican. There, there are other people out there who have, have other beliefs um, and that I'm trying to approach things from the standpoint of what I would do to, uh, 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 to, to help someone achieve their best possible health. And Dan, I, I'll tell you a really quick story that I, I often uh, well, I, I don't often share this, but, uh, but, but I share it when we talk about politics. I'm an anesthesiologist, and uh, I remember uh, a day when this gentleman came into my operating room, and he had his sheets pulled up uh, up to his neck. And he was a young guy, a healthy guy, and I had to pull down, I had to pull down his sheets in order to get the EKG pads on. And he didn't want to let me pull down his sheets. And I pulled down his sheets, and he had swastikas written, or swastikas tattooed all over his chest, all over his arms. And, uh, and he was, quite frankly, terrified that this black doctor was going to see this and treat him differently. And that would, that would ultimately uh, lead to a negative outcome. And so... I could have reacted based on my perception of him uh, in, in any number of ways, but uh, I had noticed from his chart that, that he had kids. And so I, I said, so how many kids do you have? And we got into a conversation about his kids. He relaxed a little bit uh, and we got through the case. Okay. And I, I tell that story because if I'd reacted the way he expected me to react and the way he was afraid I was reacting uh, his outcome and my outcome could have been very different. But I like to think that I did my job, um, regardless of my perception of him or his politics or his beliefs. And I also like to think that the way I reacted towards him maybe showed him a little bit of how his thinking was in error and uh, and maybe helped turn him in the right direction. And I think we all need to, to give people the benefit of the doubt and to really uh, – hear them out and realize that, that even in the worst of circumstances, we often have more in common, or at least we have something in common, uh, versus focusing on what we perceive to be a difference between us. Though, Doctor, I, I just want to challenge you on something that you said, which is describing you or others as Trump appointees. You are Trump appointees. There was a different Surgeon General in seat before President Trump came in and picked you. That said, I, I hear what you're saying about the framing, 
And there's a well, and, and Dan, ju- just really quickly, I, I didn't say that I have a problem if they say Trump appointee. They say that's Trump's surgeon general, or they say that's the White House surgeon general. And my title is actually the United States surgeon general. And I've talked to past surgeons general. We, we're, there's only uh, 20 surgeons general throughout time, and they, they share that same frustration that they're seen as only representing their party instead of the entire country. And again, we all are very um, glad that we have gotten this role and we recognize that we got this role because uh, there was a president who appointed us to this role. But uh, we also all struggle to help people understand that, hey, uh, we see this job as a job of public service. Uh, One of the things people also don't understand is that the Surgeon General oversees the United States Public Health Service. And we've had over 4,300 of our officers deploy uh, to the epidemic. In that role, uh, I can't be any more partisan than the head of the Army or the head of the Navy or the head of the Marines. And, uh, And I really think it's important that people understand that once we take these roles, we make an oath to serve our country uh, and not to serve a particular party. And, uh, and we, we really work towards trying to make sure we bring people together and tell everyone how they can be healthy. Well, you're talking to a reporter. You're on a podcast. Is there something that you think has been wrongly politicized that you've worked on that you want to share your perspective, try and set the record straight as you see it? Well, I think there are a couple of things that I would like to to reiterate and set the record straight on. One of them is the wearing of masks or face coverings. That has become incredibly politicized. And the fact is, we've always maintained that you wear a face covering to uh, primarily protect other people from you uh, being a, a disease spreader. And so, as I've often said, one of the things that that we didn't realize early on was the high degree of asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic spread that takes place with COVID. So originally, uh, the World Health Organization, the CDC, and my office recommended against people wearing face masks, particularly the medical face masks. They weren't seen at that time as having a major benefit for an asymptomatic wearer, i.e. the general public, but they were seen as potentially pulling from the supply uh, for, of medical workers, of which there are still complaints about limited supplies around the world. So that still remains a problem. Uh, I want people to understand that, that as the, the science evolved, our position evolved, and that's what you want out of scientists. You want them to give you the best advice you can right now, but you also want them to have the humility to, to say we're wrong. You want them to have the, the, the diligence to continue to look up and look at the data and, and adjust those recommendations accordingly. And so um, what we've said has always been the best advice we can give based on the current science. And it really frustrates me not, um, well, yes, uh, I have to be honest personally, but, but beyond personally, it frustrates me that so many people are attacking uh, the CDC, attacking uh, other health providers who were just doing their best to get good information out there. I, I also, uh, while I have you, do want to say that I, I feel that some people out there have mischaracterized my position in regards to uh, uh, people of color and COVID. I have always, always, always said that the number one reason people of color are at higher risk is because of the circumstances 
uh, they often find themselves in, their social predisposition, the fact that the, uh, they often live in neighborhoods that don't afford health, that, that one out of five uh, Hispanics and one out of six blacks has a job that allows you to telework, that minorities often are going to take public transportation. These are all the things that we talk about that, uh, that often uh, have racial bias in, embedded somewhere in their history that lead to negative outcomes. And I talked about these things, uh, but I also uh, reiterated to folks that there are individual things that everyone can do to protect themselves from COVID. And uh, I, I really want people to understand that it wasn't me saying it was either or, and it certainly wasn't me blaming anyone. It was saying that, that, that we need to put the individual action with the systemic change and really put people in the best possible position to be healthy. And uh, I am a tireless advocate for health equity. Uh, and I want people to know that I'm willing to work with anyone who shares that goal. Do you find that as an advocate for health equity, every statement that you're making, including to me right now on this podcast, you have to weight it against the power of your office and how people will interpret if you say something that may not sound, especially out of context, may not sound exactly how you intend it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that is one of the hardest parts of this job. And people who know me know that I speak very plainly. I speak to someone the way I would speak to a friend, a neighbor, a colleague, my mother, my father. And I've had to, to, to really become more guarded and recognize that, hey, if you speak in this manner, uh, there's someone out there who either may accidentally or intentionally hear it differently. And that could ultimately impact your credibility. It could ultimately impact your ability to be able to, uh, to, to help influence behaviors in a positive manner moving forward. And so uh, it's something that I'm continually, again, I talked about humility. Uh, as you get more information as a scientist, you adjust. Uh, I am getting more information each and every day about how to be a more effective communicator and uh, to do that in a highly charged political environment, to do that in an environment where people naturally have a distrust of me, not because of anything that I've done, but because of who they see me as being uh, affiliated with and what they think they know about me. And uh, I'm just going to keep working each and every day to try to be the best physician I can, the best husband, the best father, the best brother and son, and the best surgeon general I can, and hope that at the end of the day, my work stands for itself. I, I feel like we went down a conversational path I wasn't expecting. But the responsibility of being a public official, especially in the year 2020, means you're under constant scrutiny. You've talked throughout this conversation about the need to be a clear communicator on public health and the fear that sometimes what you and your colleagues are saying, it gets politicized and it doesn't get heard by the populations who need to hear it. There are not many people in America who have bigger megaphones or platforms than you, but one is the U.S. president. And when President Trump speaks or tweets, that can influence the interpretation of a situation. President Trump has said a lot of things about coronavirus that, frankly, aren't true in terms of how it might transmit, the state of the national fight. Last week, he suggested that essentially we can declare victory over coronavirus. There was almost a split-screen effect as President Trump was standing in the Rose Garden. CDC Director Robert Redfield was warning that we still have a long way to go 
in fighting this virus. How much harder is your job because of what President Trump says and tweets? Well, when I look at what the president says and does, uh, one of the things that that, uh, you've heard people say often is that he is uh, very aspirational, um, particularly when it comes to COVID-19. Um, and we really try to give people the, the full picture collectively. There are different messengers for different messages. And so all I can control is my own message. And I try to give people um, the most uh, transparent and honest information uh, that I can. There are people out there who are doom and gloom all the time. There are people out there who, who are everything is awesome all the time. And uh, again, what I control is what I say as Surgeon General. And what I want people to understand is that we are making progress as, as it pertains to coronavirus, which is something uh, that the president has reiterated. Dr. Jerome Adams, the U.S. Surgeon General, thank you so much for joining Politico Pulse Check. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate the opportunity and be safe. All right. That is our show for today. I'm Dan Diamond, and my thanks to Surgeon General Jerome Adams for talking with me and Jen Sherman and his office for helping set up the conversation. Our producers are Annie Reese and Jeremy Siegel. Jenny Ament is our senior producer, and Irene Noguchi is our executive producer. You can subscribe to Politico Pulse Check on your favorite podcast app. You can help us by leaving a rating or review. Every time you do that, that can help new listeners find the show. You can follow Politico's coverage of the coronavirus and the Politico Nightly Newsletter. You can also check out Politico Pulse, the newsletter every morning that I co-author that sets up the issues that we're watching for the day. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you again next week. You know, I wore this blue shirt just in case there was a spot open in the public health service. But it's not too late. Uh, I know a guy who can get you in. <laughs>